Hi, welcome to the uh, latest podcast. You'll know that the last one that I spoke about, we talked about equity and equality, as opposed to some sort of theoretical point of view. But I'm delighted today to have with me uh, Vicky Owens and Jamie McGregor, both of whom I know because we foolishly decided to do an educational doctorate in educational leadership together. So we meet on a regular basis to talk about that. And both of them have and still work in, in an area of equity and equality about working with some of our most vulnerable young people to get them back, back on, on the wagon and uh, a more positive future. So uh, welcome both of you. And um, what I'd like you to do is just introduce yourselves and the work that you do to start with. So Jamie, do you want to kick off? Yeah, of course. Well, thanks for having me, John. So my name is Jamie McGregor. I'm the managing director of an organisation called Bright Direction Training. We work exclusively out of schools, effectively, I suppose. We typically work with 16 to 19-year-olds on the sort of younger end of things, then 19 plus for apprenticeships and back-to-work education. Our purpose really is to get people back into work, is the headline, I guess, but there are a myriad of things we do in between that to try and sort of progress people and um, give people the opportunity to develop their own abilities, really. Thanks, thanks. Vicky? Oh, hi, I'm uh, Vicky Owens. I'm a director of Calm Provision. So the work that we do is set up for around 11 to 16-year-olds primarily. And we focus on mentoring as our kind of primary structure of, of the setup. Now, that is based on we want to try and reintegrate those learners back into school. Some of them have been excluded, so that is where they tend to get sent to us. Um, and we use mentoring as our work tool. We use that as part of the um, connection to say, you know, this is where you need to build your communication skills, your personal skills, develop, develop the students that way, ready for them to reintegrate back into the education system. That's what we primarily do at the moment. Okay. Thank you, Vicky. So um, one of the things I was going to start this call with was asking why on earth are the three of us doing our educational doctorate? And I forgot to ask you that question, but it's actually pertinent because I think if I remember correctly, both of you, you were approaching the research phase and both of you can do your thesis and uh, around this sort of area of work that you're doing. So Jamie, have you given much thought now to the focus of your research? Well, I've given much thought to why I'm doing the doctorate, John. That's what you mean. <laughs> Tell me that. Why are you doing the First doctorate? instance, well, it's, it's a strange one from my own perspective, really, because typically I don't consider myself very academic. I've never really excelled in any academia, but I sort of made myself a promise when I was younger that I would continue to be in education forever because I think it's a gift that we're given in this country. And just by the virtue of being born in a particular part of this spinning rock, I get that opportunity and that gift. So I've always wanted to take advantage of it, even if I'm not very good at it at times. So I've always done straight through from, you know, GCSE to, to A-levels, to a degree, to another degree, to a teaching degree or whatever, PGCE. Then I did a master's and I hated myself for doing the master's, the MBA I did, because it was ridiculously tough at the time. Uh, and then thought, I swore myself that I would never, to myself that I would never do anything further. I convinced myself that a doctorate is a worthless qualification because it's purely valuable in academia and not in real life. Yeah. And then as I matured, I realised that was utter nonsense uh, and I decided why not push for the top of the tree and go for the doctorate as well. So that, that's why I signed up. Um, 
I'd be lying if I didn't say it was ego related as well. I like the thought of being called a doctor, um, but but that isn't motivation enough to complete this. I'm fascinated with education. Um, I'd go as far as I'm slightly obsessed with the development of people. I think it's almost a fundamental purpose on this earth, aside from reproduction, is development of ourselves. So um, I'm, I'm obsessed with that. I'm obsessed with the science of it. I wish you could keep up with it at times, but this is my attempt to do so. So I hope that answers why, why I'm yeah. on the doctor, John. But if you're asking about my research, yeah. my research is not much further developed than we last spoke, but it's going to be something around the lines of which leadership styles uh, result in high quality educational provision in my world. And when I say my world, I mean adults and not children, people who've been through the traditional education system, past that, and then want to develop further for various reasons. I want to see what you need to do to do that well. I'm wondering right. what traits exist here. Great. Okay. There's a couple of things that sort of hit me when you were talking there about, you know, both all of us live in a privileged part of the world where we have these opportunities and you know, I, I've had an opportunity to travel all around the world and I work with schools in South Africa, in the townships and in India. And what always astounds me when I go there is how desperate they are to get their education. Yeah. In, a way, in a way, you know, I can go into the deepest bush in Tanzania with a school, it's a tumble down place with no roof. And the mm. kids are smart, perfect, and, you know, three to a desk, but they're desperate to get education in a way that you, we almost take it for granted. Absolutely. So it's your ticket to ride, Jim. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is going back to the uh, uh, doctor is that um, I think the only reason I decided to choose this particular one is that I wanted, I didn't want to do research that didn't have any purpose. Yeah. I think that David Hopkins, Professor David Hopkins, makes it very practical and allows us to draw on the stuff that we are doing. It is isn't. It is academic, it's very academic. I mean, I've never read so many books. I mean, I am an academic. <laughs> I, can't, yeah. I can't understand half the things I read. So it is, <laughs> it is academic, but, you know, I, I, I see the practical perspective of what I'm doing through this research. So um, both of those things resonate. Okay. Yeah. So why are you doing it? What, why am I doing it? Well, I wish I could tell you that answer. No, joking. So for me, I saw the doctorate as, as a tool for, for getting through a PhD, really. So obviously the difference between a PhD and a doctorate, and I chose a doctorate route because some of the elements are taught and it allows you then to structure what you are doing in terms of then how you apply what you have done in your modules or your assignments and you can put that application into your thesis. So in essence, for me, I've always been quite strong on the leadership side of things, as you probably have known in the past conversations that we've had, you know, in some of the, the lectures and some of the feedback and presentations that we've all done. I've always stuck to why leadership is important. Yes, that is what we are all doing in terms of education, doctorate and educational leadership. But in terms of my kind of thought pattern in, in, within it is... I want to ensure that whatever I put into this, like the talk modules, and then it obviously drives the thesis, is that I can apply this to real life and put it into a real life perspective. So for me, my focus is on student engagement and how does leadership link to that and why does it link to that? You know, for, for in my situation or the students or learners that we, that we have, I find that if we don't have engagement with them, then we're never ever gonna get them to be 
the person that they want to be or how how do we get them there and leadership is is one of the core elements of that so that is why I chose educational leadership amongst obviously the, the other um options that I did have that's the reason and one because I'm possibly a geek for learning I you know I enjoy yeah. reading yeah. I like having the debates the, the 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 conversations about what leadership means for other people why do they apply it how do they apply it and what what is the outcome of that and that is what I'm trying to find out in in my ultimate aim to do this uh, doctorate well if I just share my journey so I mean someone in my age why on earth am I bothering to do this well I think it's something I always plan to do but never had the time to uh, and so I suppose it's, and David Hopkins had, his, had my arm up my back as well. But I mean, <laughs> um, and as you know, Vicky, at the university, it's important to be able to do various things to have that sort of uh, background um, with you. Um, yes. But, uh, but, I, but I also wanted, because I am teaching on master's programmes, uh, mm -hmm. what I needed to do was get myself out of the practical day-to-day -day stuff, or mm -hmm. in, as we call, academia. So I felt if I went through it myself, and mm. teaching it to master's level so I suppose it was and the ego a bit as well Jamie yeah, it's true isn't it it is yeah. true everybody wants to be oh. three, you know yeah. all doctors do now we give it another two years we'd be all uh, doc doctors what we're going to do with ourselves let's go I'm for a minute I'm not kidding my chickens just yet Vicky yeah. but you know it'd be like when we book a table to go for a meal it'd be like oh yes um, Dr Owens um <laughs> Can you come this way, please? I'm sure, of course, I will. I don't mind that. <laughs> you sound privileged, don't you? <laughs> it's interesting as well that I think for both of you as well, it's grown your work in, in the doctors has grown out of your passion for the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. so, Jamie, why, why work in this sort of area? Is it just by chance that you've got here, or is it that you have a real passion for working in this sort of area? Well, it's, it's about moral purpose for me that the answer to that question. I originally wanted to be an IT guy. Uh, my first degree was in information systems and critical criminology, so absolutely nothing to do with education. But um, I think I developed some, from somewhere, I can't even tell you where, this moral purpose. And I won't swear on, on your podcast, John, but there's a saying that's similar to give a damn that I often use with a slightly different ending. Um, and, and that's kind of sums up my entire value system in one little sentence because it's important to me to care about other people. And I think that sort of caring perspective maybe is the term is is the reason I do what I do and I never get bored of it I never ever get bored of it. even when today I'm as you quite helpfully pointed out I look tired <laughs> because I am tired um, yeah. but I still still no part of me thinks oh I want to go home earlier I don't want to go to work tomorrow or not one bit of it so I absolutely adore it I see it all around me the benefit that it, the work we does as to people who are less fortunate than me you know I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk more about equity but um, it's a, a real privilege, you know. I'm very grateful to, to have the opportunity to earn a decent living doing what I do, to create livings for other people um, and to create educational opportunities for people that can help them, give them a second, third, fourth or, or tenth yeah. chance, really, to get to get into a position like mine. Vicky, why, why, why are you in this area? Well, I'm going to be quite honest and probably dig a little bit deep here. Right, I hope you're ready for this. So I would say that when I was a young lady or a young girl I wasn't the best behaved in school so this is probably this is where this probably has generated from because I was probably on the verge of potentially being excluded myself 
Not because I didn't have the academic ability. Yes, I had that. But it was more of they didn't actually understand me as an individual, me as a person, what I required. So on a personal level, this is probably where it has stemmed from thinking, right, well, I had certain difficulties in school. Did anyone actually try to connect with me in that way to say, right, Vicky, come on, woman to woman or, you know, person to person, what can we do to help you? And that didn't happen. So as I've obviously transitioned through life and, you know, um, gone through my own education kind of platform, you know, I've done my degree in psychology and law and that taught me a lot psychology especially because it teaches you about yourself and in in a nutshell I had a word with myself if you like because I think that is quite something that I needed to do to think right what is my future going to hold for me now if I connect that to where we are now I think that obviously some some students are learners there's a missing gap there there's no link to what they require do they have that support there is the mechanism for them to transition effectively through education so this is where compass mentoring came from because i thought well if we have mentoring within it then we can help them find their own voice find their own way of being having that good communication skill and as i was saying earlier about trying to connect the dots of yes you've got the foundations of getting your communication skills yes you have to learn and do your gcse's against the national curriculum but then how do you then connect that to being being able to do a traineeship or an apprenticeship or furthering your skills to employability because where is that connection if we don't do it at the level of the younger age group it's going to even be more difficult when they transition out of that and get into the world of work, you know, in, in terms of connecting what you do, Jamie, I think it's quite key. Um, maybe we should do something together in the future. I don't know how all that will look like, but I just think, yes, there's a gap there. And I wanted to kind of put the measures in place to think, right, well, if we apply mentoring to those learners who have got behavioural issues, are excluded from school, feel like they're not worth anything because a lot of them if you do speak to them are finding that nobody listens to what they have to say and that is important to me student engagement is 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 what drives me purely as well on my own experience of being on the verge of that of that angle as well so that's why yeah okay so i'll do my bit because uh, so i have to go way back so um <laughs> i i grew up in the lincolnshire fens so in a very rural area. Um, and I was talking to my, my mother's 93 and I was talking to her yesterday. I was trying to persuade her to do a podcast with me, which didn't quite, <laughs> didn't quite work, but um, and perhaps later. Uh, I, I know that my, my grandparents were farm labourers and I was asking her about what they would think now about, you know, what my grandchildren, what her great, great grandchildren are doing, my children, who were sort of our one's a doctor, one's a banker, and one's a network manager, you know, so how did that all happen? And it was about, um, we always felt someone believed in us, was there for it. It wasn't about money and materialism. There was always someone who believed in us and gave us the time to be what we were. And I think that um, that in a way has driven me all the way through 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 my career, recognizing that. I, I say about my kids, I, I wound them up and then let them go. Because I trust that what we've done enable them to be the people that they could be. Okay. Um, but I, I started teaching in the centre of Leeds, um, in a very tough part of Leeds, and I've never seen children like that. You know, this guy from the rural fens. You know, it was really tough my first year, and I could fill you full of all sorts of strange stories there about that. Um, so that's sort of been through my career, and then 
but I think the best way of illustrating this, so when I was appointed a, as being head of Rivington and Blackrod in, was it 97? Okay. One of the things I realized was that we're spending all of my time as a head dealing with discipline problems with 30 children in any given year group. They were always seen as problems because we never got behind them as to why they were behaving like that and what the problem was. Yeah. So we, 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 we had a, one moment where we all sat as a leadership team and I said, look, we're not going to do this. We're going to ask ourselves, why is that? What, are, what is the circumstances of each of these individuals? And why is it that we can't engage with them and we're wasting all our time holding them here or excluding them or just finding ways of moving to the next way forward? So we created our vocational program, vocation, three POs. I can't remember what the O stood for. And I remember I interviewed all 30 of them with their parents. And that was hard enough getting the parents in. Yeah. Most of them, last time they were in my office at Rivington Blackrod, they were probably being came themselves to being naughty boys and girls themselves. It was the nature of that. So they were very intrepid about that. Uh, and we created a very special program where they were only in school for two and a half days. They were out. We have an engineer. I hired a cook to, to do the domestic science part of it, the food technology part of it. We built a construction site. Um, so we spent half the time off. We put a lot of work into their core skills, but we built them as small groups. We, I employed people who weren't necessarily teachers, but got alongside and did the mentoring and coaching that you did. But that first meeting, I, and this is 2002, so this is before lockdown and computers and the same sort of, I handed all of them a laptop each. And I said, this, you're going to need this to be able to work in. And they were just absolutely gobsmacked that someone was actually giving them the tools to even begin to engage with what we were talking about rather. And, and then I started to understand what, what we understand by equity. I don't know if you've read it, but I've just been reading Shuggy Bairn, which is a book by uh, Douglas Stewart, about a young child growing up in Glasgow, an alcoholic mother. And it just summed up so many of those 30 kids in their own individual circle. There was no lack of love or respect for their families to them, but it was just a total chaotic bit of life. And I, I used to say to my colleagues, if you knew what they walked through, to be able to get here, you wouldn't behave with them in the way that you actually do. You need to understand where they are and the rucksack of problems they bring through the door in the morning before you start shouting at them for being three minutes late or not doing their homework. That has to change. And only if you do that and allow them that self-respect will they then be able to start to engage. And of course, they will get it wrong. They will fall off the wagon again at some point in time because that's the nature of their chaotic lives. But you have to respect that and start to believe in that. But I'm so proud of what many of those kids went on to do. You know, we found alternative ways of giving them qualifications. You know, it was in the days where you could count BTECs and all sorts of things as qualifications. And it may not have been the same, but they left with something and they got on to something. But the main thing was that we got that respect. So in a way, that's what's driven me really through my career to, to try and make sure that we have that equity. Think about where they are to start with before you start thinking about equality. Mm. Very true. Very true that. So if you think about, you know, you, you will, you know, both of you will be the recipients of people who've been through a normal school system. Okay. So when you look at, look at those schools and those places where these kids come from, 
are the things that you think to yourself, only they had done this, or I wish they wouldn't do that, or had they thought about this, things that you, you wish schools would think a bit more about? Well, for me, I, I will say, I think they've forgotten who the, who the students actually are. You know, they're the central driver, really. And I think what I have observed or I have obviously been involved with, because I'm a qualified teacher as well, I've done quite a number of different qualifications, but that's one of them. And on observation, I've been in different schools, different settings, different colleges, and obviously now university. I, I just think that they don't know how to engage with the student effectively to make them feel they have something to achieve. Now, I don't know what that's based on, you know, if I link it back to like the research that I'm, I've been looking at, literature reviews, you know, papers, you name it, journals, I've read thousands of them up to now, well, maybe not thousands, hundreds, let's not exaggerate, but yeah, it's been quite a lot. And what I've noticed, especially looking at say the government policies or reform agendas especially for say alternative learning or exclusion of students is that they don't include how leadership should look I think it needs to have a different approach and if I link it back to what you were saying John you know your approach is very different I think you saw it as that the student is the the, the moral purpose or the moral core of what's happening until you engage that part of it nothing else will follow if you don't follow from the student's voice, what are you trying to achieve? Is it a top-down approach? Are you just trying to do be dictating what should happen? It's got to be fed from the student. That's what I think a lot of schools are potentially missing. Now, I will say this, though. I don't think it's entirely their, their fault. I think they are obviously surrounded by policy, agenda, bureaucracy of, of what the government want them to achieve in terms of their outcome. But does that always work? Mm, there needs to be a reconnection somewhere. I don't know what that's going to look like for the future, but it, it, in my view now, we need to be looking at the student as the moral foundation of anything. And if we don't, we've lost them. We've lost that connection massively, which is a shame. Jamie? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, John. I think... I think one thing might be oversimplifying these this problem not problem. I don't like to think of it a problem. It's it's the reality, I guess. But I think the stuff you were talking about just then, John, about um, the if you what do you say if you, if you only realise what these learners had had to walk through before they got to the classroom, that level of empathy. I saw a quote the other day that said every single. Oh, let me get the quote right. It said every, every behaviour can be understood if you have enough information, and I think that's true. And I think that's. An example of it would, would be there. If the teachers in your scenario had had the empathy that you had for those learners, then they would have had a different approach to things. If they'd had that additional information. And I think I, it, it, there was one thing you had to change, well, two things. Well, two things I had to change. I'd say the, the John Hattie's basket of educational goods approach, I think is something that has to be changed where we talk about not just academic results in maths and English, but about all the resilience and the mental health and the well-being and, and with a different score. I mean, I struggle with metrics when it comes to education anyway, particularly in the earlier years. But I think I think there's value in having a bigger basket of goods that we measure people on. Uh, because that, and that links to what Vicky just said, then I think you, if that's student-driven, uh, which it would be easy to do, then I think we would achieve a lot more. Uh, the, the other thing would, would be role models. And I feel a bit cliche saying this, but I think culturally, and maybe I'm talking about... Uh, the typical, I don't know, probably even white uh, school kid, perhaps, dare I say, that the lack of role models, probably more so with the males than females. I don't know. I'd have to 
I couldn't, I couldn't, I'm generalising like crazy here, John, but I feel like that is a big issue. I feel like we see people in our classrooms from different demographics who who are the kids that you talked about, you weren't lucky enough to get put on your programme, John, in the, the exactly same age. You know, I left school the year after you went to Rivington there. So, so there were kids my age, and I see those kids now, and depending on their demographic, and I mean that from a socioeconomic perspective, from a racial perspective, from a, an international sort of geography perspective, uh, access to education, et cetera, et cetera, depending on what that is, depends on their motivation to get on in life. And, it, and often the white British male is the bottom of that pile when it comes to motivation. And I think that is heavily influenced with role models. I don't know how you fix that problem. I know it's not very helpful to create a, a question, a solution without a roadmap of how to get there, but somehow we need to find better role models for these kids to, to look up to. Because if they see no worth, then they're going to put no effort. And if we no effort, then we're not going to achieve very much at all. Right. Uh, so I'll give you an example of one. So um, when, I, when I was at Rivington, uh, we used to use the Anderton Centre quite a bit for staff yeah. training. And there was a, a, a guy there who was a cook. Uh, well, he was a chef. He'd be really annoyed if I called him a cook. <laughs> and uh, he, he came from a pretty tough background. And uh, he was a big, strong white lad, really. And an amazing, amazing chef. And uh, one of the assistant heads persuaded him to come in and do some sessions in school with, with some of our kids uh, and work with them. And he loved it. And they loved him as well. And he was a real rough diamond. So when I restarted the Dean School to be Ladybridge, I asked him if he'd like to come and work full time. And we established a kitchen, a full catering kitchen, to be able to do the full vocational program in that particular area. Kids loved him and loved it. He, you know, he got me into trouble with some of the things he used to say, <laughs> things he used to do, which were quite out, out of a teacher's handbook. But the difference he made, and I think that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Who, who they can, and, and he was passionate about, like you are, about improving his lot, about improving his education as he went along. So yeah. it wasn't just that he was one of them. He was really keen to show them, and he'd tell them precisely, you know, if you do this, this is what will happen. This is what happened to me, uh, but I decided to do this, this, and this. So that made a made a big difference. Well, do you know what's so tragic about it? Is is from my perspective, it's the easiest thing in the world to tell somebody else you believe in them with some kind of honesty and integrity. Yeah. And I believe in all yeah. these all these people who come into this building, and nobody's ever said that to most of them. No. And you see the change, they're like, oh, what do you mean? I see you can go on, I, 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 forgive me if I give you an example here, but I know you wanted to talk about examples later, so it just popped in my head. I was doing some work at a UCAN, it was the early days of the business, so I was I was everything in the bit, I was, you know, HR, payroll, teaching, full trip, and I was taking every opportunity to earn <laughs> money, money I could, and I was doing uh, basic IT sessions at what they call a UCAN centre in Bolton. They're a project created by the local housing authority, Bolton at home. Um, and they're, they're basically community centres within the most deprived neighbourhoods. Fantastic uh, project and very impactful. So I'm up there having this conversation. This girl walks in one day and she was probably, let me think about her age, she was probably about 23, 24. She was working in the local co-op, which happened to be next door. And she was a parent of two kids and her, her husband worked, but she was they were cutting her hours down. So they kept cutting her hours down to the point where she was better off on benefits, which is a common thread in my world. Yeah. And I said to her, I said, come on, we're doing basic IT. I said, give me, give, give me the honesty now. I said, what would you want to be? If all things removed, money wasn't an issue, job time, everything wasn't an issue, what would you want to be? 
She went, honestly, I said, yeah. She went, you'd never believe me. I said, what is it? She said, I want to be a social worker. I said, so why can't you be a social worker? She said, oh, people like me don't, don't become social workers. You need to go to university. And I was like, I was flabbergasted because I just don't have that gene that tells me I can't do things. I'm the opposite way around. So I'm like, of course you can. No, no, I can't do that. I said, let's have a look. And we looked, and we, you know, long story short, we found a foundation degree at the University of Bolton. And I said, let's ring up. No, I'm not ringing up. Refused to ring up. I rang up on her behalf and booked her an interview. Um, and time passed anyway. I, I don't know what happened. I lost contact with her. And then about a year, I'll show you the email when I next see you two. I got an email from the manager at the UCAN Centre in Tom Moore. And he sent me an email to say she passed the foundation, joined a degree, was now qualified social worker and been given a job at Bolton Home in the UCAN Centres. Really? Like, that wasn't me. That was her. And it was all her. There was no credit to me whatsoever. But the point was that had she yeah. not believed for that minute, she'd have never gone down that path. It's about sliding doors. And those doors are open to us all. But the people don't believe they can step through them. And that's such a tragedy because it's the most simple thing in the world when you believe. Yeah. You know? And I think that links yeah, into what you were saying, Vicky, that, um, you know, I put coaching and sort of all the schools I work with, I encourage them to create. By that, I mean that there is an advocate for someone who believes in every individual child. Yeah. The job is to find a way with them to be able to find a way and be there all the time and believe in them whatever happens. I love many that. Them, many of them don't have that at home. Mm. They have come from homes, not that they're not loved, but they come from homes where they had that mentality and have learned this pessimism. Yeah. Whatever we do, and everything. Yeah. So but you know, as, aspiration is contagious, absolutely up or down. You know, if, you, if you're surrounded by people who believe, you know, who are dreamers, um, then then you're going to grow up believing you can be a dreamer, aren't you? You know, those, as Roald Dahl once said, those who don't believe in magic will never find it, John. And, and, but in the same respect, if you believe you can never be anything and your dad believes you can never be anything and all your mates' dads believe that. So, they, you know, it's, it's contagious. It's a disease. Of course was, it is. I was the first person in my family to go to university. So Really? Was, yeah. And I often sort of think, well, I was doing an assembly at Charpool once and I was, at, my father was sort of on his last, in his last days and I was quite emotional about the assembly. But I was asking myself why I was, why... Like you, I don't have any boundaries. Mm. I start on things that are like, you know, that's why I broke my back, deciding I'd cycle from Vienna to Budapest, <laughs> you know, on my bike on my own in the middle of the summer and got knocked off my bike. You know, I, I don't have boundaries like that. Where did that come from? When mm. I look back, it was always my father. So if he built a fish pond, it was like a bloody lake. <laughs> if we had chickens, we had 500 chickens at the bottom of our garden. There was never a time when he stopped me or stopped any of us from thinking about the bigger picture. Yeah. Anyway, so, Vicky, going back to that sort of mentoring, so thinking about the people you've engaged with, have you, have you been able to see young people who benefited from what, you, what you're doing and, and, and that farm work? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've got one kind of story that, that sticks out. This is one of our, I say, early interventions, if you want to describe it as an intervention. Um, so this particular student was a male. Um, he was quite, I'd say, abrupt. He had some kind of behavioural kind of issues. He came from being excluded from school. The people referral unit couldn't deal with him either. So then we we kind of engaged with him. Um, and what we did, as I've obviously mentioned before, we gave him the tools to empower himself. We gave him the tools to have the 
ways of problem solving things like that communication have the ability to have confidence in himself and without going into too much depth in detail um he started to believe in what he was doing and where he was going in life now his ambition was I think as if I remember rightly it was either to be an engineer or around that area some, something like that so quite ambitious and he had, he had the same kind of mindset that well how am I going to get there what am I going to do to to achieve this so we we just engaged him and said you know you have got the ability let, let's think of a plan let's put a plan together so we did that we wrote a plan down and it didn't happen overnight it was it was an ongoing process so a bit like um, a development plan if you want to call it that individual learning plan if I say um so then as the time went on we had him I think he was with us for about I think it was three months. So he was already already in his last year of education. So in his GCSE year, and he also didn't think he could pass his GCSEs. So because we gave him the, the foundation of those tools to believe in himself, he did pass his GCSEs. He didn't do amazingly well, but he achieved the GCSE in English, Maths and Science. Now that was something he never thought he could do. So then fast forward maybe a year because then after he finished those GCSEs he went back into I'd say the system or the system forgot about him because there was no connection we didn't have any engagement after that we saw him in I think it might have either been Bury or Bolton I can't remember which which town it was but it was either one of them and he stopped obviously me and my my partner who's obviously involved in the business as well and said you know I'm here I'm, I'm doing really well he had a shirt and tie on he was really proud of himself and he couldn't wait to tell us I've been trying to get hold of you for the past 18 months and I've not been able to no one's been able to give me your details and I just want to tell you how proud I am of one engaging with what you was doing and how you had a belief in what where where I was coming from and I think it is key to everything if you listen to the student you will get what you want from them and they will achieve it as well it's them that do it it's them that have the drive but you've got to give them the tools to have that drive and that's what my passion is and that's a good example of somebody that went through our journey. I'd say, I call it our journey because we went through it as well, not just the student. We had that emotional connection with them, which I think is important. Thank you. So uh, just running towards the end then of the podcast, I just want to pick out two or three things. So I'll just part where we're going to go in this next bit. So I'm, I'm just going to say a little bit about multi-service, multi-agency services. And then I'm going to ask you to sort of reflect we hear a lot at the moment about disadvantage coming out of the pandemic, affecting people differently. From where you are at the moment and looking out there, are you seeing things that are going to change? Is, is it going to be more kids who will need this support or, 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 or is it about the same? Uh, and then finally, perhaps from both of you, one or two things that you wish if you had the power to change the big things you would change. So I just want to say something first about multi-agency because um, when I was at Rivington, I was also chair of Bolden's Children's Fund, um, and our job was really to reach out to hard-to-reach communities and take the Every Child Matters agenda forward. Um, and one of the things, and I've worked a lot of this in the schools that I've worked with, is that children fall down the gap between the services, social services, health, and people don't talk to one another and create that, as you were saying, Vicky, holistic picture of what this child is. We just deal in our own individual salvos. And, you know, there have been tragic cases around of kids who have died or, or been um, abused in all sorts of ways because the services weren't all together. So I, I still think we are nowhere on that. I still think that there are kids who are lost because we don't capitalise on those sorts of things, really. 
Um, so I, I worry about that, and that's probably the basis for another uh, podcast in itself. Um, but do you think, given the situation we're in at the moment, let's hope we're out of it soon because I'm fed up of sitting in this shed. Um, <laughs> so in terms of this pandemic uh, and the impact on young people, and I've said to most of our school leaders, you have to rethink what you understand by disadvantage because it's affected everybody in so many different ways along the way. Um, when you look, Jamie, at the sort of next year or so, is it going to be just the same or, or do you anticipate that more challenge for you to deal with? I guess it's another interesting question because, I mean, they're already disadvantaged. That's why they come and see us, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's funny because I always think about disadvantage in large in the first instance due to socioeconomic things where I think you come from a disadvantaged area, you're more likely to be disadvantaged in terms of, you know, everything, education, health, all that. So that hasn't changed because, well, maybe slightly more people are slightly less economically active, I guess. But on the other hand, there's been an absolute storm of money being thrown at this sector, the sector, I mean, the welfare to work sector. So the, there is a lot of money out there to, and there are a lot of projects to help people out get back on back on the train, if you will. So I, I don't know. I really don't know in my, in my world whether that will get worse or will get better. Can I just, I'd just like to touch on the multi-agency thing, though, because in... In, in my world, I keep referring to my world like it's somewhere else. It's not. They're just a little bit older than your world, John. Um, but th those multi-agency issues are an absolute horror show for us because I think it's a, Brit I don't know if it's a British disease, but it feels like bureaucracy and the more complex we can make it is almost like a sport in this country. We'd definitely be gold medal in the Olympics for bureaucracy. And, and people are in their own little silos, but they're, they're not just silos. They're ivory towers where everybody wants to be the best in their little tower. And they're almost warring factions rather than, you know, people who are working together to help people out. And I think people don't keep their eye on the prize a lot of the time, which is helping individuals, which is a battle I fight every day, be it with job centres, be it with benefits agencies, be it with your know, housing, social housing, food stuff, credit, you know, everything. Uh, and these are, these are issues these people have to fight without the resources that somebody like me, you or, or Vicky would have, or the support, you know, so... I think multi-agency, I think it might be a pipe dream, John, to have that dream system. I find it hard to imagine one where everybody works together. Um, but I agree. I agree it's a huge problem. Going back to the original question is whether, whether the deprivation stuff will increase. I guess it probably will. I guess it probably will. I just like to think that we can make a, a bit of a dent in it pronto, you know, to help these, these people. Because it's all connected. It's not... Even if we talk about the kids in school and, and the massive gaps in learning they've now had, and how that's recovered, which is, is certainly another podcast on its own. But what, then you've got to think about the parents. Are they in work? Uh, you know, can they afford good food to make sure they're healthy so they don't kick on to the NHS and blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, some of it might be to do with what we were talking earlier about being more positive about things rather yeah. than negative. You know, so again, talking to my mother yesterday, uh, she said, I don't know why that my 93-year-old I don't know why they keep talking about lost generation. We went through six years of the Second World War. We never saw ourselves as a lost generation when we came out of it. You know, so why do they think that, you know, if only people realised what they had now, yeah. I had at school, can we stop talking it down? Yeah. Many kids have been amazingly resilient. Many yes. families have been amazingly resilient. Let's start there rather than the other way around. Well, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of positives. We, I'm seeing quite a lot of the positives, really. There seems to be, to me, almost like a change in psyche 
where it's almost shook the bottle up a little bit, where people are saying, well, hang on, a lot of people are moving careers. I look at labour markets quite intensively because it obviously dictates our curriculum sort of areas. And hospitality is really suffering because they've been mistreated for decades. And what happened is people got out of that job because they didn't get furloughed or what have you. They were in trouble. They got a job in, I don't know, logistics or warehousing. And suddenly it's a lot more stable. There's a lot better income and there's no risk of them going pop again if, 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 if God forbid, COVID comes back in, you know. So, so people are starting to think, well, oh, actually, do you know what? I'm going to do that job that gives me four days working from home just because I want to be near my kids, not for anything else. They're almost like re- it's like a midlife crisis for everybody at the same time. You know, people are reevaluating what really matters to them. And I think that's a real positive. And it will, it will change, I think, some of the sort of labour markets. I think certain things are going to struggle, certain things are going to do really well. But it is a massive opportunity, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. Okay, so let's sort of move then to the end here and ask the million-dollar question. So if you had a magic wand, a couple of things that you really wish people would do or the system would do or things would change that would make things better. Vicky, start us off. So what I would suggest is potentially looking at the curriculum itself. Now, yes, there is foundations there that we do require. English, maths and science are the main foundations of that. But then can we apply something different in there? How do we do that? I don't know what that's going to look like, but I just feel like students that we engage with, yes, they have a label now, don't they, of being the disengaged, the naughty children, the ones that don't want to do the mainstream education. Well, is that not telling us something? The mainstream education potentially isn't working correctly. You know, like I've said in the past, you know, we need to listen to the student's voice, you know, in experience, working in a pre myself, they they were trying to tell us that, well, why am I learning math? Why am I learning English? And nobody could tell them why. Yes, there's a ways of applying it, but then they will come to an alternative provision, such as calm provision, and we are still structured by the same routine of what is in a mainstream national national curriculum. Now, for me, that makes a disconnection there because they are still going to be disengaged because they're doing the same structured system because it doesn't work for them they've come from mainstream but then why are we separating that why are we calling it a a provision for the naughty children is that the right way around it i don't think so but what the answer is i don't know but i think i'd like to see a change in in the the name of that as well you know do we need to say that they're disengaged yes they are but that is against the label of the national curriculum. Well, let's change that then. If that's what needs to be changed from the lower levels, let's try that and see what happens. Yes, we've had BTECs in the past. Yes, we've got apprenticeships going forward, but what is in the middle? What yeah. are we doing? Yeah. Yeah. Jamie? Yeah. Well, three things that I wrote down, about 27 things that I thought might be a suggestion. And like I said, this comes with a slight caveat because I'm not in a school teaching these things. But there are a few few things I'd like to see changed with my magic wand. Um, I want to reduce learning accountability. I I don't see much, certainly in the younger years, certainly in primary. I see I've got two primary age children myself, and one of them's incredibly academic. The other one is is less so. One's a girl, one's a boy. You can probably guess which way around that works. Um, But but I don't think it's helpful. I don't think the standardised testing is helpful. I think it allows... Teaching probably encourages teachers to game the system in a way to you know to get up lead tables and what have you. And I don't think that's helpful. So that's number one. I think we need to focus more on employment. 
rather than just academic achievement. I think, and, and there are steps to improve careers advice. And I've been involved in a project recently in Bolton where I was asked to go and speak at a school about career with about careers advice. Um, and I think there is an absolute monstrous gap between the reality and what these kids are being told in schools. And thirdly, I'd like to see, well, four, four actually, I'd like to see more opportunities for varied curriculum. I love the Anderton Centre stuff you did, John. I do it myself. We do it with our classrooms here. We we often go to Anderton. We go do various, I love the idea, the concept of an outdoor classroom. Not, not as an alternative provision in the sense that Vicky would use it for those kids who are being marginalised in your world, Vicky, sadly. But just for everybody, because there's nothing to say those kids who do well at academia won't do even better in a different setting, in a different context, in a different way of thinking, a different learning, different life skills. Uh, because we've been teaching those same models for 100, 200 years now, haven't we? And, and the whole world's changed upside down twice since then. So are those really the skills that are, are those skills as important today as they were 200 years ago? I believe perhaps not. And the last thing is, I think we should never run out of chances for people. I don't think it should be a strike one, strike two, strike three. You're in Pru, you're in AP, you're in whatever. I think you should have a million chances. You can keep getting chances until we find what it is that, you know, what suit of clothes fit you. And I think that should be that should be a given. That should be the fundamental base we start with, not something we have to implement. Right, I'm going to have one last year myself, and I'm going to go even further back. Because I think that if we understood equity, we'd understand that it starts from the moment they're born. Yeah. And I think we've lost so much from where we were 20, 30 years ago when we had short starts and every child matters. And I think if we just invested in our youngest children and in their families to be able to help them be the best family they can be, because it's it's very often it's not their own fault that they're struggling. It's the context that they're in. That energy is into that. You know, the figures about the number of words that three-year-olds know, depending on which family they come from, are sort of thousands and thousands. So they start at a disadvantage, and they start with that negativity in themselves uh, to make that happen. So, you know, I think one of the things I'd like to see is then to rediscover the importance of investing in families and in young people. So... You know, this business about universal credit and taking 20 quid off and, and losing that, it's another example of where they're forgetting the importance of that marginal amount that makes a big difference yeah. in the individual family. Agreed. Um, anyway, that's been fascinating. I hope everyone who listens to this eventually will find it so as well. So thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Vicky, very much. No I will end the recording now.